0: Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 45, Wandering in the East End, 1888. I'm Jonathan Mengis, coming to you from San Diego, California, and joining the show today from Guilford, Surrey in the UK is Philip Hutchison, and from London, England in the UK is John Bennett. Philip Hutchison is the co-author with Robert Clack of the London of Jack the Ripper, Then and Now. John Bennett is the author of E1, A Journey Through Whitechapel and Spitalfields. They are both Ripper tour guides with Discovery Tours and frequent contributors to the podcast. Welcome to the show, guys. Pleasure. Now, uh, The way we're going to approach this episode is we're going to be taking the canonical five murders locations in order. And then after that, we'll do uh, some of the non-C5 murder locations and Chronicle Order with those as well. We're going to separate it. The first part of the show we'll be talking about the C5 and then after that we'll talk about some of the non-C5 victim murder sites. And first um, question I'll have, it's more of a comment and if you guys want to give your two cents um, on it, is that uh, what I see uh, from time to time on some of the message boards is people will make the comment that it's a shame that some of these murder locations weren't preserved. That uh the landscape in the East End has changed so much that they really wish that um, there was some kind of preservation uh, from back then to, to keep keep some of these uh these places um, still standing so we can actually visit the the murder sites as they were then today and um I just wanted to make the comment that um, many of these buildings that were occupied by shopkeepers or ran as lodging houses. And those packed with tenants, such as Miller's Court, were rather once nice master weaver's homes, dating from the 1700s. 26, 27, and 30 Dorset Street were already standing for some years when John Miller purchased them in the 1830s. And it was he who joined 26 and 27 and tore out the garden behind the buildings to create Miller's rents, which 50-plus years later would be the scene of the murder of Mary Kelly. So when we speak of these locations, we should bear in mind that by 1888, they had already been in existence for, in some cases, over 100 years, and that these buildings had suffered neglect throughout the 19th century. So the idea that it might have been even possible to preserve some of these structures is is kind of remote. Um, what what would you guys have to say about that? Would you agree? or
1: Well, I think – there's there's sort of two issues here isn't there um one is just the pres- preservation of old buildings but the other one is do you preserve somewhere <clears throat> because it's the site of a historic murder um which probably has certain people frothing at the mouth mm. and um so you know they didn't preserve 10 rillington place for example it just went like everywhere else uh, and various other places uh the the, the best one example I can think of is um, the place in Gloucester. Uh, Cromwell, is it Cromwell 25 Road? 25 Cromwell
2: Street. 25 Cromwell, Cromwell Street. Street.
1: yeah. Um, Fred and Rose West. I mean, the minute that was over, they demolished it. Um, I think there's a bit of a dubious intent when people say, it's a shame that, you know, Miller's Court is still not around, so, you know, you almost get the impression it's t- so they can go and have a gulp, you know, can have a little look themselves. Right. Um, but in truth... Most of those places, like like you said, Jonathan, were, were pretty hanging, were in pretty bad condition in 1888. Um, and even though the Luftwaffe didn't manage to um, bomb them out of existence in the war, um, they didn't contend with the GLC, the Greater London Council. Um, and I think they were the ones that were responsible for most of those sites coming down mainly because they were unfit for human habitation um you know like you say a lot of them were in very poor condition in those days so in by the early 1970s when a lot of them came down george yard buildings bucks row 29 hanbury street uh, you know various other places th- they were pretty bad i've read the um the health and safety report or the health inspectors reports from the 1960s about certain places and uh, they make for rather alarming reading when you find out that in as early as the 1970s a lot of the houses in Buck, for example didn't have toilets and things like that and um, so they really had to go it, it would have cost too much money to essentially them up or bring them up to standard at that time so um, it was probably inevitable that they went, and it's actually quite surprising that they didn't go earlier. Uh, so anyone walking around the, the East End before the early 70s would have been able to see these places as they were. But as far as preserving them, just for the fact that that's where Jack the Ripper killed someone, I think it's a little bit of a sort of a dodgy, a dodgy premise, really.
0: Mm yeah I would agree with that John Now uh, before we start talking about the actual murder sites, I have a couple of general questions just about the landscape of the East End at the time, and the first one concerns uh, the the streets themselves, uh, which uh, we've seen photographs of some of the murder sites and um, like Dutfield Yard and mitre square and um, the, the people sometimes ask if uh, those are the original sets or cobblestones in the streets. And um, Philip um, seems to be an expert on sets and cobblestones. (laughs) So my question is first, explain to our listeners the difference between sets and cobblestones. And are any of the streets' sets from 1888 exposed today? Is there any trace uh, in the East End now of the streets from 1888?
2: Sure. Well, firstly, I'll say I've never seen cobblestones in the east end of London at all. Cobblestones is the generic name that everybody tends to give to these stones that are, uh, are concreted or mortared in, into the ground or a roadway or a pathway. But they're only th- things you'd find, really, in, in quaint little uh, English villages. Cobbles are rounded pebbles that are set into the floor, mm. uh, you know, extremely uh, difficult to negotiate. They're difficult to walk on, difficult to uh, to drive horses over, but, of course, they're very hard-wearing. Uh, I guess the reason with cobbles, of course, is that you can actually accumulate a great deal of, uh, of muck and dirt in there and you could still actually negotiate on top of them. That might have been why they were there in the first place. Sets are the other uh, thing that you will find in the East End, and what most people refer to as cobblestones. Sets are simply flat stones. Uh, They could be bricks. They could be stones that have actually been quarried out and and cut to make them flat. So when when we're speaking about, uh, say, for example, the cobblestones in Mitre Square, what we actually mean is
0: is the sets in Mitre Square. And do you know of any uh, sets in the East End uh, from 1888 that are visible today?
2: That's going to be difficult to, uh, to be sure about because uh, you'd actually need a, a, a contemporary picture of, of where they're all laid out and actually match them up one by one. There are, there are places where there are sets lying on the ground all over the place, uh, but mm. it's, it's almost impossible to tell if they're actually contemporary to the time of, of the Ripper murders. One thing that does happen, uh, and, and John can confirm this as well, uh, around the area of Allgate High Street over the last couple of years, there's been a great deal of uh, relaying the water pipes uh, the water pipes that were there have actually been there since about 1900, and so they've been replacing them. Now that's that's involved the digging up of the roadway and some of the pathways around there and, and underneath the uh, the tarmac. Uh, you can you were able to see whilst the work was going on the level where this where the sets used to be, about uh, about six seven inches beneath uh, beneath the surface. So the majority of them are actually still there, but they've they've largely just been covered up.
1: Gunthorpe Gunthorpe, uh, the old George Yard. Gunthorpe Street—that still has sets, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But, um, whether whether they're the the ones that were there 121 years ago, um, I wouldn't know. But uh, it does add, it does add to the uh,
0: the atmosphere? I must admit. Yeah, and in the United States, and it, this probably occurs in Britain as well. Sometimes a street will be paved over with um, with pavement for you know thirty or forty years, and then all of a sudden the the city planners decide to Dig up all that pavement to expose the uh, original brick lined streets um, just hmm. to kind of give the neighborhood a, a different look you know it goes through it's almost like goes through fads of of hmm. it being nice to um, have the original brick lined sets uh, exposed in your street or sidewalks even so they kind um, of they kind of come and go
2: sure unfortunately, a mindset that I don't think you'll
0: find in the east End yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's too bad. Uh, not not that we could ever know if they if they could expose the original sets from 1888, but it you know it's kind of through the movies and everything. It's kind of an iconic um, image of you know the the people walking down cobblestoned, mm. for lack of a better for lack of the term sets, uh, <laughs> cobbl- cobblestone streets and everything. So um, now, if can
1: sick- see it all through the fog. <laughs>
0: right Oh, yeah <laughs> uh, and it, this is, isn't it, it makes the, the nice clacking sound as as people yeah. are walking down the the sidewalk or whatever or the streets so um uh, my um second question just about it, it in general about the east end um is about the street lamps Queen Victoria's in this murder case is known for commenting about the lack of sufficient lighting on the streets and alleyways in the East End. She expressed concern over uh, the lighting situation down there. And um, some illustrations, like the ones of the Bucks Row murder site, show street lamps. Um, and we we might think that, that that's a pretty accurate depiction of the the area, uh, the, art, the illustrator adding that street lamp in there. So we were able to know, oh, well, there was a street lamp, the there are at, uh, at the corner or whatever. Um, but are we able to know uh, exactly how many street lamps existed in the area around the crime scenes and where they were located? I just, well, I'm wondering whether Phil might know this one but a bit more than – I don't know. Because on the GOAD maps,
1: which are the, as far as I'm aware are the most sort of accurate mm-hmm. maps of those sort of eras, I'm not sure if lamps are marked out. There's these blue circles, which a lot of people assume are lamps, but they're actually fire hydrants or something like that. Um, but I think, in terms of, I must, I would assume they probably didn't have as many lamps or lights they, as we they, did they, today, they as we do today. Yeah,
2: absolutely not. I mean, they were few and far between. The whole, you know, one of the whole uh, positive aspects of the entire case was that they started putting a lot more lamps in afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been checking out the ordnance survey maps, and that there's nothing on there to indicate they've actually marked where street lamps were on those, mm. unfortunately.
1: And I, I would I would generally assume that think that certain courts, and that it, I think it was the whole um, the whole thrust of Queen Victoria's sort of telegram that said, you know, all these courts must be lit. I think she said, words to that effect, uh, suggesting that it was probably a lot of them weren't. And I know Miller's court had a lamp in it just on the other side of the court uh, Mary Kelly's door I think it was or round about that that's way that's right yeah but one has to sort of pretty much imagine that there would have been a lot of them that wouldn't have had any lighting at all so you know at night if you were in one of those places I don't know how they how they got around probably from the light coming out of windows perhaps um, it would have been as, as black as Newgate's knocker round there you, you know whether you'd been out to see your hand in front of your face so um, it would have been, I think the whole area would have been a lot darker than it is now. And actually, there are still some areas that are still quite sort of dark yeah. places. Yeah. When you, when you uh, say mi- to people, ima- imagine this being a bit darker than it is now, and they sort of say, hmm, you know. So it, well, it would Neil, have a
2: Neil Bell's. Uh, Neil Bell did did some uh, research when he was researching Mitre Square uh, that the lamps uh, let off about a third of the light that uh, modern-day street lamps do. Uh, A a quote he gave, which I use quite often on tours, is it's about the same light you get inside your refrigerator.
0: Mm. And that's when the lamps were working at all. And some of Jake's artwork um, that we all know and love – this, and in particular, his one's a Miter Square. He has he has lamp posts situated in certain areas, and then he also, I believe, has a lamp post uh, in one of the um, alleys leading into Miter Square. Do we know mm-hmm. if if those are accurate? Um, yeah, we do know yeah. where the lamps were in Mitre Square. And again, that's um, although
2: it was written down, it's, it's really Neil Bell that's consolidated all of this. So, so we know we know for sure now. There was one out in Mitre Street, which didn't really shine any light in Mitre Square at all, just in, into its entrance. There was one mounted at the foot of Church Passage at the end of the square, and there was also one uh, in the far corner, quite close to the join of the buildings at the uh, at the Keelian Tong warehouses in the uh, north east corner, mm. but the, because the light was so dim that the the whole thing was is that the uh, the corner where the the Eddow's murder took place wasn't lit at all, mm. uh, and that, that was that was the, that was the darkest part of the square because there was no street lamps in that corner.
1: I think we know we know we know where those lamps were because of the um yeah. the the drawings oh, that were made course. by Foster. Um, at the time, and he actually says where the lamps are, you know, so that's how we we know at that time exactly where they are. (laughs) Um, If you look at a map, it won't tell you, but he has done, he did, rather, the drawings, so um, that's how we know where they're they're from, but like Philip was saying, I think there was only really two that would have had any impact on the darkness of the square. Um, There's that famous photograph by, I think it's William Whiffin, isn't it, Um, from the 20s?
2: 1925.
1: which looks to all intents and purposes like it was taken on a bright, sunny day. If you look at the sunlight crack coming through from Mitre right Street. Yeah. But the rest, of, the rest of the square is really dark because it, it, yeah. you know, of the warehouses. So if you can imagine what it, that would have been like during the day, at night with a couple of very feeble lamps, two feeble lamps giving off light in two corners, it would have been very
0: dark indeed, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, let's uh, first, uh, as far as the actual murder sites, talk about Bucks Row. Um, we, uh, Who wants to start uh, as far as um, telling us uh, a little bit about the area around the murder of Polly Nichols? Phil? Phil? No, you've done a lot more work on Bucks Row than me, John.
1: <laughs> uh, okay, right. Let me just pop... I've got some stuff here on the screen. There we go. Um, okay. Okay. Um, well, the area of Bucks Row... Um, Bucks Row was a very narrow thoroughfare um, which went from Brady Street widened out after a large board school which was built in the 1870s and then it carried on until it became White's Row and narrowed out and then became um, into Baker's Row which is now Valance Road Um, but the, the area in question really is the little bit of Bucks Row that runs from Brady Street to the board school, really. Um, in those days, uh, until, well, I suppose fairly recently, in you know, time-wise, you had the board school, uh, which everybody knows about and is still there. Uh, you had a wall with a railway line for the East London line, ran underneath it, and then the well-known... Terrace houses I'm not sure when they were built But uh, obviously they would have been there With the Roebuck beer house on the corner with Brady Street And on the north side You would have the um, Brown and Eagle wool warehouses And this is where I sort of wonder Where it all um, exactly is at the moment Because we hear about the Brady Boys Club Which is also on the northern side Just to the west of the Brown and Eagle warehouses And then Essex Wharf Which adjoins it um, which is quite well known. And then once again, mm-hmm. you've got the East London Railway going on it. Um, Mary uh, Ann Nichols was obviously murdered in front of stable, Brown's Stable Yard, I think it was, uh, the gates right. of that, in between the wall and, the, and what was called New Cottage at the time um, mm-hmm. on the south side. And on the other side was Essex Wharf. And one thing I sort of keep thinking about here is there's a lot of talk, usually, isn't there? About the escape route that the murderer took from Bucks Row, and unlike today, there were several um, extra possibilities uh, that we don't have now. Um, I think I, I mentioned something about this to somebody who did an article in Ripperologist about uh, Queen Anne Street. Yeah, well, that was everyone talks about. Directly north. Yeah directly north which was quite close to Bucks Row and then there was uh, Thomas Street which is now Fullbourne Street which ran north and south and then you had Court Street and of course the famous Woods Buildings, Woods buildings. which is very very close to the uh, the school. Um, further down Winthrop Street which ran parallel with Bucks Row you had um, a little area that was a recreation ground for the um, the working lads institute and then just after that you had harrison barbers and co slaughterhouse uh, where various witnesses were sort of working that night or not working as it were and then a little passageway called nelson court and then it goes off to brady street so it's quite a little complicated little area um to the north of the brown and eagle warehouses i don't know what was there at the time Um, Some maps show that there's, like, the manure, manure works and things like that. But in 1889, they started building Brady Street dwellings. And I've often wondered, in 1888, was that area empty? And also, the Brady Boys Club, I don't think, was built until the 1890s. So you would have had Essex Wharf and some sort of gap and then a huge load of waste ground, possibly. This is all theorising here, by the way, which could have been an extra way of getting out if you're talking about an escape route for the murderer. And yeah. that's, that's the area around Bucks Row, as far as I can see. Sort of, at, at that time, because um, it's very difficult to pinpoint when certain places were there in 1888, because things were on the go at that time.
2: Yeah, the uh, the manure so, uh, works is actually marked out on the 1873 map, but of course Brady Street drooling yeah, there by the time of the 1894 <laughs> Ordnance Survey. Um, just a, just a couple of uh, things to add there, John. Whilst you were mentioning that, I've I've got out books and stuff and done a little bit of date checking up. Um, the the terrace cottages on the south side of Buckrow were built between 1862 yeah. and 1872, apart from New yeah. Cottage, which was built in uh, 1875. Now the right. story with New Cottage is that they'd actually finished the terrace before New Cottage, but they didn't need as much space as they anticipated they did for building the East London Line, so they used the space and then they built New Cottage afterwards. And ironically, of course, New Cottage was
0: the first of the ones to go and it got uh, destroyed during the uh, the Blitz. Mm, that's right, yeah. And the, the uh, dwellings that line Buck's throw at the time are, are given um, a couple of different conflicting descriptions in the, the press. Um, s- some of them refer to it as rather nice, quiet... Little street and, and and others refer to it as as you know a place well, well known but for frequent of, of prostitutes uh, yeah. do we, do we have a, a, an idea of what, um, what what type of tenants lined that area and which Polly Nichols was killed in front of
1: well the, the general sort of idea you get from well if you look at the, the census and things like that, they all just seem to be very ordinary working class people Mm. and like you say there are many comments in the in the press about them you know it was a quiet street with a more respectable type of people living there right um Mm. and yet i've read um i think there was a thing which i'll probably refer to later on i think it was this one it's called murder land revisited um it was something that was published in the pall uh budget in 1890 uh where The journalist goes to Bucks Row and says that it wasn't a particularly nice area, and this is only, what, a year and a half after the murders, and says that um, while he was near Bucks Row, he heard a load of screaming, Um, so he ran to Bucks Row, and and not far from where uh, Marianne Nichols was found... There was a woman screaming her head off, obviously drunk, who'd fallen over and she'd cut herself and all this sort of thing. And suddenly, after a couple of minutes, a policeman came along and, and ran over and sort of said, hello, 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 what's all this year then? And she pr- promptly attempted to beat him up. And, <laughs> and the journalist said, obviously, things haven't changed that much, <laughs> suggesting that it was always like that. You know, So it's, it's hard to tell because there's so many different – there's these two sides – One, it's respectable. The other side, it's... I haven't.
2: You know. I have a feeling what, what we might well have here is that the uh, the, the statements are subjective. You know, if, if you're actually someone who, who lives in the East End, you probably would call it a nice area. But if you're someone from the, the salubrious West End, you're, you're not going to think yeah. the same thing. I have a yeah, feeling that uh, the, the, the comments are that the residents of that street were, were respectful of down with things. But uh, the people that walked through it, uh, you know, from, from Whitechapel Road, the, 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 the non-residents around there were probably still you know, as rough as, uh, as you'd find on the flowery Dean estate. Right.
0: Okay, and now let's uh, go on to Hanbury Street. Um, it's, and we we're lucky enough to have photos, uh, pretty good ones, of um, of twenty nine Hanbury Street, and um, and also other uh, buildings along Hanbury Street. And to me, they always look the same. Um, it's it's, <laughs> it's like a you know yeah. one 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 the whole the whole block seems to just be a repeat of the same kind of style of, of dwelling. Um, so who wants to go in, into a little bit about, uh, 29 Hanbury street for us?
2: <laughs> John's better doing this off the top of his head than I, the thing is, whilst John's actually saying all this stuff he remembers. I'm busy checking through my books and stuff to, to
0: <laughs> fill in the details that he didn't mention. Well, what, what, what kind of house was 29, <laughs> what, how, maybe this will help. What, what kind of house was 29 Hanbury street, uh, and uh, wasn 't it, it one looked of the like we- all the others it was well, <laughs> yeah. besides looking like all the others it was another one of the weavers cottages wasn 't it that was converted yeah. into lodging houses yeah. Or, yeah. Or, it, it, was, or, it was it was not uh, lodging houses, the, but rent rented rooms
2: yeah yeah i mean most most of the houses were built around the uh, the turn of the eighteenth century by uh, by the Huguenots of course were escaping the persecution in in france um they, they all had large sash windows. The thing with a lot of the houses that are still extant around there in Wilk Street, Princeton Street, Fournier Street, beyond, uh, they're all built to the similar pattern because uh, the, the, the buildings themselves, they had uh, you know, uh, several floors. There'd be And we've got to distinguish here between the English and, uh, and, and North American saying of ground floor and first floor and things. Mm-hmm. There, there was what we in the UK would call a ground floor shop, then first floor, which for you would be the, the second floor another floor above that, and there would have been a garret room above that as well. Um, and, and that's, that's a, a pretty formulaic throughout that part of Spitalfields. The, the large sass windows, of course, were because the majority of Huguenots were silk weavers. They needed the large windows to see to do the cottage industries by day. Uh, 29 itself, um, I'm obviously I'm, I'm speaking the obvious here. chapter and verse was uh, by that time uh, in the uh, – it wasn't – it's not been established it was owned by, but it was certainly run by Amelia Richardson. The uh, the shop at street level, which had only one door at that time, the uh, the second door, um, which was the, the the eastern door, was actually inserted many years later to give direct access to the shop. Uh, that was Harriet Hardiman's cat meat shop, of course. Uh, the, the 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 door entrance led straight in to a door on the right hand side, which at that time was the entrance into the shop. Then a staircase beyond leading to the upstairs rooms. Uh, with a total of 17 residents. And uh, there would be a dog leg past the staircase going through to the backyard, which is uh, approximately about 15 feet square.
1: Well, a lot of the... Um, well, obviously the buildings, the houses around there, and we see the same ones on the opposite side of the road, which are probably built around about the same time, and they're <laughs> still there, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. They were essentially accessed by a side door, as Phil said, with one room at the front and one room at the back. And then you had the three floors and then your attic room. And a lot of them have cellars. I've been in three houses in Princeton Street and one in Wilk Street, and they all have exactly the same layout. And I've seen um, photographs, obviously, of other interiors of other buildings, and they're they're all all that way. So, like Phil said, um, they would have been wonderful houses in their day in the 1750s or whatever it is. But once the, the prosperous French weavers left, they were sublet, uh, room by room. So then you would have someone like Harriet, um, sorry, Amelia Richardson, whether she owned the whole house or not, I'm not sure, but she was letting out different parts of the room, uh, the house to various different people. Um, as far as other premises were concerned what the sort of um things that were going on in those in those houses i think there was all different things um I'm trying to think uh, actually harriet Hardiman, the cat's meat lady of number 29 i think in the 1881 census which is you know seven years before, she's actually recorded as being at number 27 hanbury street I might be wrong on this one. This is all coming out the top of my head now. And uh, she was there with her husband, and they were um, slipper makers, boot makers. So there would have been a lot of those sort of industries around, the sort of, you know, the tailoring, the slipper making, that sort of thing. Um, Cigar making was very popular, cabinet making, all that sort of stuff. So I can't see any reason why Hanbury Street would not have been... I mean, it wasn't in the league of like Flower and Dean Street and Dorset Street or anything like that. It was a little bit out of the way there, but um, I think predominantly, probably not unlike the people of Bucks Row, um, but they would have had a bit more room, perhaps, to operate their own businesses from the from the from the the bottom floor or even the basement in terms of the Richardson's.
0: Right, and as I was saying about how on that street there's there are um, it seems like a cookie cutter. Fashion of you know the, of all the buildings along that, that row there uh, looking the same, and uh, 29 Hanbury Street, as we all know, has a backyard. So I assume, and 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 it has been said that you know of course we know the next door neighbor to 29 Hanbury Street had a backyard. And was was there also a pretty much a series of backyards that that, that ran behind those buildings? It's kind of messy the way the way that's laid out. You would think although mm. formulaically they're all the
2: same at the front, when you when you look at Ordnance Survey maps at, at the backs, it's all over the place. It's a complete jumble. It's like a game of Tetris yeah. going on.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at one now actually. And um mm. it's surprising how few how many properties there are from like number 17 to 43 Hambury Street. And I can see what 1 2 3 4 5 6 only seven backyards. There, one of which is um, mm-hmm. the yard of number 23, Hanbury Street, where um, the guys from the, uh, what was it, the Baileys, packing case makers, used to work. And then you've got number 25, 27, 29, and 31. And they've all got very, in fact, they've got the biggest backyards out of the lot. Um, yeah. 31's and then it all, it all goes pear-shaped, and they're all uh, tiny and- little ones. You've got Barber's Yard, and then that's it. It all gets clogged up with um brick lane so really yeah that little stretch the four houses where 29 hanbury street is had a luxury of quite large backyards compared to everywhere else and
2: even even those houses don't don't actually have the 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 backyards all exactly the same size that they're slightly differing in
1: size yeah there's all sorts of little funny sort of buildings in the back and you know which i assume Mm. are often sheds or outside lavatories and things like that but they're quite enclosed um because mm. you've got a paper warehouse at the back and then you've got the Bloomin' Brewery. So that sort of cuts off, you know, um, in terms of being cut off if you're going to murder someone and things like that. Mm. so, um, Certainly on, on yeah, the yeah, southern so of side of, of that
2: part of mm. Hanbury Street, there's, there's, there's virtually nothing at all on the southern side. You, you, you've actually mm. got... Uh, it's like literally a few square feet at the back of the buildings if they've got one, if they've got one at all. Uh. So, so gardens in Hanbury Street is pretty scarce. Mm.
1: They would have. There would have been more, obviously, in the day in the in days of yore. You know, in the 18th century, when mm. um, the north side of Hanbury Street certainly there there were there were little orchards and gardens and things like that. They were, you know, but eventually, like anything, they all got built on. So, uh,
0: well, moving on to Duckfield Yard and Burner Street. Um, I kind of get the the impression, and maybe it's a false one, that, that, that Burner Street is is more of a commercial area um, as opposed to what we – it seems uh, like Bucks Row and Hanbury Street. Although there were businesses out of the front shops in Hanbury Street, those two seem like they're more of a residential area as opposed to Dutfield Yard. I kind of get the impression that it was kind of more of a commercial district uh, or street um, so is, is that am I incorrect in that impression or or am i right and um and we can go ahead and talk about what burner Street was like in upfield yard in particular.
2: Well, it's, it seems to be a, a mixture of the two, and I don't mean some are business and some are residential. It appears that people were actually running businesses from their homes. Uh, looking at the the series of photographs from 1909 that were taken all around the same day around those streets, you find a lot of the buildings, they are houses because they've got curtains things in the window lines up, um, you know, saying, saying what, what the people do. Um, so I think certainly when we come to someone like Packer, You know, that, I guess it's his residential address as well. Uh, but we do have uh, corner pubs and things.
1: Right. Well, Matthew Packer apparently sold fruit and veg or fruit out of his window. Yeah, in a sort of yeah, in a sort of ad hoc kind of way. But uh, but I mean, Duckfield's Yard itself was probably a was it an, I presume just a whole mixture of different things. You had the printing houses of. The arbiter front, and you know the, the the Jewish radical newspapers, and you had the working man's club. Um, and there was a school the over the road. Sack, yeah,
2: there was a sack manufacturers.
1: Yeah, there was. Uh, was there some stabling at the back as well?
2: Something like that. As there, well. Yep, Yeah, There was right down at the, at the bottom on the uh, on the right hand side when you went down there. There were single storey stables there too.
1: That's a lot. There's a lot of things going on in Duckfield's yard, and I, I've always thought that Burner Street. Was at the most like, like Piccadilly, the Piccadilly Circus of the murder sites. And mm. you know, when you hear about that, and of course of
2: that, there were, that, there were residential cottages in Dutfield Yard as mm. well. If you went into the yard on, yeah. on, on the left hand side, just past the lamp when it opened out a little more, there was a series of cottages down there too. So it wasn't yeah. just businesses and, and the working. Yeah, I mean. People.
1: The whole, if you, you know, when, when anyone ever, the one thing I've always had trouble with is the sort of the witness statements that have always gone on around, that, you know, circulate around the Elizabeth Stride murder because there are so many statements and a lot of them conflict and all the rest of it. But it just seems like there were so many people around in that street, whether they were escorting girlfriends or it was a policeman or just quite a few people just lurking in their front door or going to and from the club and all the rest of it it seemed like it was a bit of a sort of um thoroughfare that got people from a to b you know from commercial road down to other streets and whatever there just seemed to be a lot of activity going on around that way so it seems always, it seemed that night at least anyway very busy
0: mm. um <clears throat> anything more to add on on Deptfield yard or burner street um do we know when yes. the inner... Okay, go ahead, John. <laughs>
1: um, I reckon Duckfield's Yard was probably... If it was a ripper, a bona fide ripper murder site, it was probably uh, the biggest dead end that he could have committed one in. There was not really many. All the other murder sites have various, perhaps with the exception of Miller's Court, I suppose. But similarly, there wasn't really anywhere else to get out there.
0: Out of Duffield's Duff yard, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, on the Mitre Square, we're going to kind of try to fly through some of these, uh, since we don't want to be here all night. Um, the um, Philip, uh, you, you know uh, a bit of the history of Mitre Square, don't you? And and uh, how it used to be a, a part of a church and um, and square associated with the church and all that stuff. Could you go into a little bit of the history yeah. of Mitre Square with us? Sure. Uh, Mitre Square was
2: uh, originally the the cloister for the Priory of the Holy Trinity, which was founded by Henry I. in uh, in the 12th century. Um, the church itself actually didn't have the usual church alignment with the uh, with the, uh, the the north transept um, facing towards not the north transept. I'm sorry, the, the, the altar facing towards the east, as as most churches do. So it didn't have the usual alignment one would expect. From uh, from a priory or, or, or from an abbey, the uh, the, the the altar itself uh, would have actually been around the area, actually of of, uh, of Ripper's Corner, where the, where the Eddowes murder took place. Uh, it, it was demolished in the in the eighteenth century. That there's still small parts of the priory extant. There's a building on the edge of Mitre Street and Leadenhall Street, just uh, about twenty meters uh, from from Mitre Square, and they've preserved parts of the old structure. Uh, in there. There's been extensive archaeology undertaken there, so they've actually found where structures and parts of the building y- used to be. There are old 18th century engravings existing as well of, of the demolition, which are, are fairly obtainable. Um, but but the, the square itself would have actually been the, the, the cloister, so the, the, the priors from the priory would have actually been uh, walking in meditation in, in a covered uh, area around what is now the interior of Mitre Square. And in
0: 1888, uh, there was uh, some Residence and also um, industrial buildings that surrounded Mitre Square. Uh, can you tell us some about some of those? Sure. There was virtually nothing in the way of, of residence in
2: 1888. The only family that lived in Mitre Square at that time was a family of P.C. Richard III, which was on the, uh, the northwestern side of Mitre Square. The square itself was predominantly filled with warehouse buildings. Uh, Horner and Company had a warehouse running from Church Passage down towards Ripper's Corner, um, Williams and Company had a, a warehouse that was uh, later taken over by the Keeley and Tong uh, building, but that was actually running out, um, meeting the entrance from Mitre Street. Uh, in Ripper's Corner itself, there was an empty house, then in Ripper's Corner next to the junk room, into the square itself, uh, the Mr. Taylor's picture framing shop. Uh, next to the the house where PC Smith lived, there was another empty house, and then filling... Half of the northern side of Mitre Square and down the entire side uh, of the east, running down towards the entrance with Church Passage, uh, was the Keeling and Tong warehouses. Now, of course, there's only one person who'd be awake in the square at night time, and that was uh, that was their night watchman, George Morris. So, although there were houses in Mitre Square only one of them was actually in use at the time of the
0: murders. Okay, and um, a question from our listener, uh, Andrew Firth, asks about the pavements around the flower beds, moving. Uh, this is in Ripper's Corner, uh, moving from its 1888-era alignment to its current one. Um, and he asks if this was possibly done to give better access to the playground of the Sir John Kaskill or for emergency services or what? Uh, would you be able to shed any information on that one for us, Philip?
2: Yeah, Thankfully, I had advance warning this so I was able to do a little <laughs> bit of checking. I've not been able to find anything uh, in, in documents, but, uh, but certainly uh, photographically uh, – the, the issue that we had was that, down the, uh, the the southern side of Mitre Square from Church Passage down towards Ripper 's corner, um, there was uh, the, the pavement itself suddenly uh, became circular and it, it widened out and it wasn 't squared off down in that corner that the pavement was, was was wider at the time. Uh, that is uh, certainly very evident in the famous Leonard Matters photograph from one thousand nine hundred and thirty eight um, and uh, at that time, the buildings, uh, the, the empty house and the picture framing shop, uh, as were in 1888, they were still there at the time of Matters Photograph. Now, they got, those buildings disappeared in the early 1940s. Um, John may know better than I. Uh, I'm presuming, uh, if they weren't demolished, then they'd suffered bomb damage. I'm not aware of bombs falling around Mitre Square, but I could
1: be wrong it's in that. The, ha- the, house, the houses of the picture frame makers, you mean?
2: Yeah, yeah, the, the, the houses yeah. that were actually in in front of where where Redis was yeah. actually killed, um, yeah, they, they not, disappeared. I've
1: never, I've never been able to find not when they went. They were certainly gone. I'm I'm sure, and I remember seeing this years ago on a map, which I've not been able to find since. at um, To hamlets, I'm sure it was there, but they were, as far as I know, they were still there in the 50s. Right. Well, certainly by the sixties. So
2: no, no. This this much we know from this is what helped by checking out the the, the photographs on the Whitby collection I've got. Uh, We do know by the autumn of 1961 they were gone, and when they were gone, that corner had also changed. By 1961, uh, the 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 sidewalk there had been removed, and there had been a little driveway had been driven through where the current entrances to the to the school playground. Obviously, at that time, it was going past the buildings that were still there into into the back of the school. So, so we, we in that case we'll be talking. It's the 1950s when it was when it was changed.
0: PCA Edward Watkins, um, we have an a exact description of the beat he took okay. on the night of the Eddowes murder that took him into Mitre Square. Is it possible today to recreate Watkins' beat? <gasps> hmm. Going through Duke Street, <laughs> Duke, Duke Street, Get, getting Street?
2: Uh, getting out maps. <laughs> I haven't got right. any. Um, <laughs> uh, old I'm not Bats sure. It, it,
1: I'm not sure if it is. It might be. Um, the The beats that I've seen, like Watkins and and Harvey's and other other people's beats, on, um, are surprisingly cover a small amount of area. Um, but I think that there was a lot of bombing uh, around that part of um, Mitre Square. The square itself. Did not did not get it. But the great synagogue behind the Killian Tonge warehouse, that was completely ca- oh Ah, yes, indeed. So, so, was, so was Duke Street and a lot of that. And I, I'm sure that um, some of the streets nearby took hammering <coughs> as well. But as far as I know, I've got a feeling that a lot of those streets are still there. They might be have different names and things like that. You can still possibly walk those beats, um, personally. Yeah, I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing a bit
2: of comparison. Um, certainly, mm. looking around here uh, we 've actually got extra streets now that we didn 't have at the time, but i can 't yeah. see anything from from the beat area that appears to have been removed mm. uh, it, all, it all looks the same, he even plays like St Mary Act, you know where the famous London Gherkin stands today
0: mm. that
2: was uh, that was running the same course as it does now
0: yeah and I, and um, i 'm going to throw these two out. Uh, at you guys um, uh, concerning Etta's in the night of her murder, and that's um, I want if you have anything to discuss about the scene of her arrest at twenty nine Allgate High Street. Whoa! <laughs> 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 the, 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 the
2: ghost building, yeah, yes, <laughs> that's 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 got everyone confused, and I'm, and I'm certainly yeah. no, no exception to that. It's, it's it's one of my favorite locations because it's such a mystery.
0: Explain that for
2: us, would you? Now uh, we. Well, it, it, it sometimes doesn't seem to exist. You actually get a lot of the uh, directories yeah. and things, and it, it's not listed, or if there is listed, there's nothing listed as, as actually functioning there. Um, now, we know the building's there because there's photographs where you can see it in the distance. Um, there was a tobacco manufacturer, I think it was Adkins and Company, uh, were next door to it. And, of course, it was only a couple of doors up from, uh, from Allgate's uh, tube station but the the building itself as far as I'm aware there's nothing been found as yet to establish what was actually there Um, presumably it didn't have a number on the front of it or anything it was just assumed to be 29 because next door to it was number 30 or 31 without checking Mm.
1: well they ran um, as far as I know that side of Allgate High Street as a lot of streets did in those days ran uh, not odds and evens it was concurrently and I Mm. have seen um, and somebody I can't remember who it was now um, about two years ago where this is a recovered thread on the message boards of Casebook had done a lot of I don't th- oh, know it was Chris Scott did a lot of um, research on 29 Allgate High Street and uh, discovered that essentially what, what it seems had happened is that 28 and 29 had, had literally been sort of used by the same company Ah, that would explain much Sort of joined together, and if you look on the maps, you've got um, 28, and then it goes straight to 30. But 28 is quite wide, so things like that. So, um, but yeah, somebody had done some some inf- you know some research on this and found that there was a lot of coming and going in terms of who owned what. However, I am now looking at an ordnance survey map of Allgate High Street from 1968 stroke 70, and it has 28 and it has 29 on it, which I've always thought, hello, that's a bit odd. So they obviously must have reinstated it at some point or whatever, but yeah, there's, and and even in those days, it still went concurrently. You've got 19, 20, 21, 28, 29, and then it's, there's nothing. Then there's like a, a huge sort of area of waste ground. And that was in about 1968,
2: 69. So. Yeah. So certainly the, the, the building that's there now, Allgate House, was built in the uh, 80s. I met somebody a few weeks mm. back. I think he'd actually, he was actually coming on Ripper Tour. He used to work in the building that was there before, mm. before Allgate House itself was built.
1: Yeah, yeah the, the map I'm looking at here still got the Three Nuns Hotel on it. Ah, uh, <laughs> so, much missed. Yes, yeah, indeed.
0: So after her arrest at 29 Allgate High Street she was taken to the Bishopsgate police station. Um does that location still stand or and what 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 else do we know about some of the the police stations that were in the area at the time? Mhm. Well, the,
2: the commercial street one is still there. The, there is still the police station in Bishopsgate. Um, I'd have to check the dates in in a book, which probably take too long. But uh, I do know it was uh, destroyed not long after it was uh, not long after it was built. It, it was it was damaged. I think it might have been bombed actually. Um, Maybe it was a case of they did actually rebuild it and the rebuilt one was bombed and they had to rebuild it again. I, th- I think that might actually be what it was. It wasn't exactly the same position where it stands in, in uh, very close to Liverpool Street Station today, it was, but it, it, was, it was very close to it. I don't think it's in the same spot. Certainly the frontage of the building has completely changed. Mm. Um, it's not yeah, really but, that-, that close either to Walgate High Street. Uh, oh, if, yeah. if you if you look on maps, it's, it's it's quite a walk. So for these this woman who could hardly stand up, that to basically you know, prop up against shutters, it must have been a hell of a job to get her up there.
1: Mm-hmm. They've got yeah, a walk the, the, the entire the, length
2: of Houndstitch.
1: Yeah, the officer that let her go was it Hut, PC Hut. Yeah, that's right, George would Hutt. Take, yeah. would, George Hut yes. reckoned it would take about eighteen eight sorry eight minutes to walk from Bishopsgate Police Station to Mitre Square. Which I think is, you know, at a, reg- at a regularly normal pace. Um, I'm assuming that Catherine Lowe's was um, sober by that point, otherwise mm. they probably wouldn't have let her go. But um, yeah, it's. But the distance. State- oh, sorry, gone, on, gone.
2: On. So I was going to say, Mitre Square is about the same distance from uh, from the site of the uh, of, of number twenty nine. It's, it's maybe a little closer, but uh, only by a, you know a, a, about half a minute's walk. I would have thought.
1: Mm. Yeah, there's not a lot in it, yeah. But uh, Bishopsgate Police Station, um, yeah, like like Phil says, I'm not sure if it's in exactly the same spot, but it looks very 1930s, the building that's there now, 20s, whatever. And I think, yeah, like you say, it was damaged in the war badly. Um, so it's not the same station that was there then. Uh, Lemon, Lehman Street Police Station, I don't think that's, that's still there, but that looks like a 1950s or 60s job.
2: Isn't it? Cool? Yeah. Ah, there we are. I've got some, I've got some details here at Bishopsgate. Yeah, the original was opened in 1965, and uh, the present building was built in 39 on the same site as the old one, but it got badly damaged and rebuilt uh, after the Second World War.
0: Ah. Okay. Cool.
2: So there we are. So, so the, the, the police stations are in the same place, but the, the police station that's there is not, the, it's not in any way the same one that was uh, there yeah. at the time of the murders. Okay.
1: All right. And Commercial Street Police Station's still there, but it's, it's yep. flats now.
0: So, um, on to Miller's Court and Dorset Street. We've covered uh, this, ex- and one way or another, on previous podcasts. But uh, who would like to explain to us what Dorset Street was like in
1: 1888? Um, Go
0: on, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a couple of
2: shorts here again.
1: <laughs> oh, all right, okay, okay. <laughs> you can edit all this out, can't you? Okay. <laughs> Okay, right. Hold on a moment. Dorset Street. Oh, yes, Dorset Street. <laughs> yes. Um, well, Dorset Street was. Um, well, it went from. ran east west from Commercial Street to Crispin Street at the. basically at the junction where it meets uh, Bell Lane. Um, not the best place in the world. I'm, mm-hmm. I've, I've always had this idea that um, Dorset Street was not actually as bad as Flower and Dean Street. And that Flower and Dean Street went down the rankings of the worst street in the area because they built things like Charlotte the Rothschild dwellings before the murders yeah. took place. And Dorset Street was literally practically unchanged anyway. Um, hence its reputation uh, later on. It was pretty much sort of owned by a lot of. Uh, a certain. a few amounts, sorry, I should say, of landowners. There were. There were quite a lot of lodging mm-hmm. houses, not as many as there would have been in Dean Street or George Street or Thrall Street. But um, there was little... Paternoster Row ran off from the north mm-hmm. um, with, a lodging, with lodging houses all the way along that. And on the corner of Pat, little Paternoster Row at number 35 Dorset Street on the east corner, you had Crossingham's Lodging House, owned by William Crossingham, and he owned a lot of the properties which went behind it which explains why Crossingham's Lodging House was sort of registered as being able to sometimes hold as many as 200 people because it was several properties all, all interconnecting. Uh, also on the north side, you had New Court uh, and then there was a, an unnamed court um, further along after a few more, there's a pub, or oh, mustn't must, must forget the pub, the Blue Coat Boy, at number 32, mm-hmm. Um then various little shops, tenements, etc. And then there's another court, which doesn't seem to have a name on any map I've ever seen. But according to the um, the booth maps, or the booth notebooks that were done by surveyors at the time, checking out what sort of people lived in what sort of houses, there is a Dorset court, but I've never seen it mentioned in any maps. But this is what this place was described as being. And then you've got Miller's Court, um, which we know all about and on the very on the very corner end corner of uh, commercial street you've got the Britannia which wasn't a pub it was a beer house uh, which often explains why it's not shown on maps on the south side you have a gigantic lodging house um, mm-hmm. opposite uh, Miller's court which is also run by William Crossingham and i think that was the um, lodging house that uh, the witnesses at the time said they saw a man standing in front of at the time of Mary Jane Kelly's murder and George Hutchinson, who was obviously probably the man, was standing outside it. Um, but you've often had this sort of mistaken identity of these two different Crossinghams um, going along there. And then there was a lot of tenements, a couple more lodging houses on the south side. The south side didn't have any sort of dodgy courts coming off of it. At all, um, the north side was demolished in about 1928. South side was demolished in
0: 1963, and that's Dorset Street. And like I had said in my introduction, a lot of these buildings that we're talking about on Dorset Street date from the 1700s, and mm. and uh, and they were once the homes of master weavers, and then yeah. and then later on, um, people like Crossingham and John Miller. Uh, would come in and buy these things up and turn them into tenement houses, yeah. or lodging houses, um, which was pretty common
1: all over. You know, there was a lot of these houses. The was it twenty six and twenty seven? If you see the photographs, they've got three stories. Yeah, you know, the, a first well, in America, first floor, second floor, third floor, or ground floor, first floor, second floor, um, with the usual. Two rooms per floor, sort of thing, just like Hanbury Street and all those ones in mm. Spitalfields that are still there, and they probably would have been owned by one occupier and then eventually
0: sublet. So, all right, you had posted an interesting photo on on the East End Photographs thread on the casebook of Dorset Street, and um, uh, it was turned in. It was the one that was leveled. That uh, little <laughs> children yeah. had apparently turned into a soccer uh, field. Oh yeah, yes. yes. Uh, w- yeah. We'll, it's a really interesting photo because it basically is just. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the area that was Dorset Street, right from mm. its beginning to end, that is that just a uh, big slab of asphalt, correct?
1: Yeah. Photo. Yeah. Basically, f- basically from 1963. Uh, when they demolished the south side, um, the, the actual opening of the car... They had an opening, can you believe, with all these sort of dignitaries from the Spitalfields Market and the Corporation of London cutting a ribbon um, <laughs> for this huge piece of tarmac. And that was it. <laughs> and, at that, and I've got the photographs. There's the photograph. I've got photographs to, to prove it, folks. But um, Dorset Street, from about 1963, 64, up to probably about... The very early seventies, about nineteen seventy, did not exist. Um, it was just a car park. You had the fruit exchange to the north of it, and then that was it. It was a, mm. a car park with a wall round it, going up to White's Row, and that's the photograph you see. And I think that photograph was taken in sixty four, not long mm. after it was was opened. So obviously, when the market wasn't operating, you'd have little boys running around, you know, kicking a football around. I've got a I've got a Kelly's directory map of london at home um from 1972 and dorset street does not exist on that map it's not it's not there it's a, it's a big van park so when they built the uh, the new car park that one that we all know today um dorset street returned i guess um but before that it didn't exist
0: <laughs> um anything you want to add philip about uh, miller's court or dorset street no, nothing at
2: all. I mean, I mean, it's a tiny little anecdote about uh, the, the fact that uh, you would see the, the pictures of the buildings in black and white, and they look extremely grim. But I believe when built, a lot of the houses down D- Dorset Street were, were made of, uh, uh, of yellow brick. So they would have actually been fairly hmm. attractive buildings
0: when constructed. Mm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's go to the non-C5 victims. And I, I do have some listener questions regarding a couple of these. Um, Oh, first before we do that, uh, this I should have mentioned this after the somewhere between the Stride and the Eddowes murder sites. uh, But what what, uh, we did get a listener question about the graffiti on the walls um, in in the East End, um, and uh, was it very prevalent to have chalk graffiti? Um, all over the place, and if we know w- if what kind of graffiti uh, would be common, whether it was political or vulgar, or uh, and what even if it was even considered vandalism for people to be writing on the walls. Uh, does anyone want to address this this question?
2: Uh, uh, Phil, any opinion I could give on that would be would be subjective. It wouldn't be based on actual knowledge. Right. Uh, and I don't yeah. think that's going to be sufficient for a podcast. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, they're, they're, only to say that that it, it does seem somewhat common um, that people would be writing on the walls in chalk, especially around market areas, mm-hmm. um, or at least what, do, what were you going to say, John? Well, I mean,
1: yeah, I, I couldn't say anything specific. I know nothing about you know what graffiti was like in London in the um, late Victorian period, but um, graffiti usually sort of reflects the area and the era in which it's done. And I'm trying to think, I think it might have been Walter Dew um, said, uh, regarding the Goulson Street writing, said that there was lots of anti-Semitic graffiti around. And that comes as no surprise, because if there was a lot of Jewish immigrants coming in and they were resented by the local population or whatever, then yes, chances are there would have been a lot of graffiti that referred to Jews or Eastern Europeans or whatever. Chalk, okay, that's fine. Well, they didn't have spray paint in those days, did they? They didn't have aerosol cans and things like that. Um, Whether it was considered vandalism, possibly not, because chalk, you can just wash off, you know. Which is, oh, someone's done something again, you can just wash it off, whereas now you've got to get all all sorts of things out to get rid of it. Um, So probably what was, if there was was graffiti around at the time, which I dare say there probably was, um, it would have reflected you know, the concerns or the, the pro- protests of various individuals at the time. Um, not to say it would have been everywhere, necessarily, but but I think you'd really need a time machine to, to know the right answer to that one, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. right?
2: You don't tend to see it. Uh, you don't tend to see graffiti on many old photographs. Now, obviously, there's, yeah, there's masses yeah. of Victorian photographs surviving yeah. in London. I can't think of a single example where I've seen graffiti written uh, on walls. The earliest uh, same graffiti here. I've seen mm-hmm. was from uh, Leonard Matters. You know, that was on the front of Balliol House, which had been George buildings. There's some graffiti and chalk that's right. on the left-hand it's side of the doorway. Yeah, that's
1: Isn't it. it a face? That's the, uh,
2: that's yeah. Yeah, that's, it's the earliest chalk graffiti I've seen in London.
1: That's right. That's the only one I can think of as well. And I'm sure I've seen another picture of some street, and it's got almost a very, almost exactly the same face. As if it was just like, uh, a bit like in the in the late <laughs> 60s, early <laughs> 70s, when people used to do that Chad you know the the little face oh, poke yeah. yeah. the wall. You know, what no beer? That used to be everywhere when I was a kid. Um, as if it was like a standard piece of oh, let's scrawl something on the wall. You know, but um, I'm sure if if, if um, the East End or that part of the East End was as angry as it was as as has been alleged over the years, then whatever graffiti that was there would have reflected what it was that was making people angry or whatever at the time. So, yeah, no doubt there would have been a bit of Jew- anti-Jewish um, protest or other things, perhaps. But, yeah, you'd need, you need a time machine to read it, to be honest with you.
0: Okay. Now, uh, let's uh, get through some of these non-C5 victims. Uh, let's start off with eights, uh, Eight Whites Row in Spitalfields, the murder site of Annie Millwood. What, mm-hmm. what, what do we know about Whites Row? Uh, well, Whites Row... Uh, the,
2: the northern side of it, um, obviously that's, uh, that all went when the uh, the southern side of Dorset Street came down as well. Uh, mm. it, it, there was some bomb damage that was done in, in World War II. There's pictures surviving of that. Uh, the, the, the southern side of it, in which eight, eight whites row itself stood... Um, well, Eight Whites Row itself, from one of the photos that John discovered, w- was clearly still there in the sixties because you can actually see it in the image. There's only a few houses, original ones, that are left there now. There's there's a warehouse right near the end of the street. There's a couple of uh, there's a, an old Georgian building currently undergoing massive, massive renovation. Uh, so that's early 1800s uh, at the at the Bell Lane end of the street. But, uh, but, but although the, the, the lodging house itself um, had the name you know, Spitalfields Chambers, it, uh, it was just a – was just a, a suffix that was given to a, a lot of the, the, you know, the bad dust houses so just to make them sound more attractive.
0: Hmm. We did get a listener question concerning the site that Emma Smith was assaulted on, which is at the corner of Brick Lane and Wentworth Street. And a question from John Guy, he asks what you know of the covered alleyway leading to the courtyard, which is situated just north of the Chocolate and Mustard Factory and nearly opposite number 10 Brick Lane. The spot in inspector Reed's report where Emma Smith was as- assaulted. It is on the 1873 Ordnance Survey map, but mm. was it there in 1888? Yep, it's
2: still on that map, and it's also on the uh, the 1913 map as well. Mm. Yeah, it is. I personally dispute that that's actually the location of, of the assault, by the way, though. But again, that's going to be subjective. When Emma Smith was actually taken to the London Hospital the next day, she walked past the, uh, the the cocoa factory on Wentworth Street itself and pointed out that that was the spot where she'd actually been attacked, not uh, in Brick Lane itself. It's actually the corner of Osborne Street and Wentworth Street. I guess, you know, this distance we're not going to know for sure, but uh, that's my personal opinion.
1: Hmm yeah it's, it's, it's a it's a tricky one because there's there's so many different interpretations of where it where she pointed to um the most specific one obviously being that ten opposite ten brick lane which puts it near that alleyway but yeah it's um mm-hmm. you know is it brick lane is it Osborne street is it wentworth street is it you know whereabouts in there is it i think because of the nature of the attack and all the rest of it it's all a bit blurry isn't it so it's you couldn't pinpoint yeah. it, to be quite honest with you.
2: Do, do we know how far up uh, George Street the lodging house was? Because, of course, I've always assumed they actually went down George Street then into Wentworth Street to go towards the hospital. But if it's far enough up, near close to the junction with Thrall Street, then it's perfectly Ooh. possible they could have walked along Thrall Street and down
1: uh, and down Brick Lane. I've got this somewhere. I've got this somewhere. Help. <laughs> I did a map, didn't I? Hold on. Bear with me. Sorry. Because it was, um, she was at, was it 18 or 19, George Street? Oh, I'll
2: have a quick look. (laughs) Uh.
1: (laughs) Because Tabram was next door, even though it was several months later she moved in. Oh, I've got it, I've got it, I've got Mm. it, I've just found it. Um, Yes, uh, 18 and 19, George Street, Mm. I should say, was at the northern side of George Street. So it was actually on the Flower and Dean Street half so if you're coming from Wentworth Street, you cross Thrall Street. and it's right. literally oh, it it, it, Yeah, it was quite f- it's opposite um, the front of the Charlotte, the Rothschild dwellings okay. at that time. Wow. Um, and uh, and we- what
2: we've got there, by 1894, those boomers are gone. That was, that was the last, uh, the lodging House yeah, she was saying, that was the, yeah. the
1: last years of its life. That's right, yeah, I think they went in about 1890, something like that, when they Blimey. got all the other stuff. Nearby, so
2: yeah,
1: and I've got I've got on my little map here. Smith and Tabram were in that little block of lodging houses. Um, well, oh, that, in that Street. in that
2: case, then yeah, maybe maybe yeah, it would make more sense that she she was indeed seen uh, going down Brick Lane rather than Wentworth Street to get there.
1: Mm. I think it was a bit of a match of a, if you want to sort of debate about you know routes and things like that, we'll never know what route they took wanted to take or prefer to take, especially if you're being chased by a gang, for example. Mm. Um, she could easily have gone down Wentworth Street and then straight up George Street or up Brick Lane and then into Thrall Street. And up George Street, it's pretty much the same sort of distance all around. Um, but you don't know what goes through the mm-hmm. head if you're being chased by a gang or whatever. Um, so, But that's, that's where it was
0: anyway. Isn't the Emma Smith assault location one of the locations that you cover on your river walks? Not often. Mm. Uh, it's, it, it, it,
2: it, we, we, we're pretty close to the area, but, uh, I mean, we, we, we tend to cover Tabram because she's right in the middle of the walking route. Uh, but Smith isn't something that we'd usually do unless she had a lot of time to kill, because the, the walk yeah. is, is about two hours long as it is. And oh. th- by throwing in non-canonicals, it, you know, it would get really long indeed. I'd only do that if, if uh, for some reason, the group was walking extremely quickly or I was speaking
1: extremely fast.
0: Oh, okay, yeah.
2: So, so I, it has been covered, but it's it's not it's not usual to.
1: Okay, tab, Tabern gets covered because many people believe, and certainly she was believed for many many years, to be the first. Right. Even mm. if they called her Martha Turner or something.
0: Whoops. Yeah. Um, right. And, we, and I do want to. Uh, dis- I I I put her in the the non C five category for the yeah. sake of this podcast. That does not reflect uh-huh. the opinions of the guests or the hosts. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, we did get a question uh, about the Taber murder site at George Yard buildings, and um, this uh, person wonders uh, about the the dimensions of the landing that she was found on, and whether it was possible to fit. Martha Tabram and possibly two attackers in in that location. Would there have there been enough room for for um, a tandem assault on on Martha Tabram at, on the landing at George Yard buildings? John,
1: hello. Um, yeah. Well, there has been a photograph, and um, Philip will know about this, and various others will know about it too, uh, in the Winston Ramsey book. Uh, claiming to be the landing, you know, where in George Yard buildings, where Martha Tabram was murdered. Um, Phil and Rob have since found out. I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Phil. But um, it Rob, wasn't Rob found
2: it out entirely.
1: Rob <laughs> found it was out. Okay, yeah. That it was. It was actually the tenement block next door to mm. George R. buildings, which was called uh, St George's House. Mm. Um, this is
0: the so photograph me, with that, the little boy standing there. That's the one, right. yeah.
1: and, uh, and there's another photograph that um, I've seen with the little boy standing out round the back of, of the actual mm. buildings themselves. Um, I believe they were built at exactly the same time. And, in fact, they were demolished at exactly the same time as well, uh, you know, within the same few days of each other. And it's quite possible they were built to the same sort of specifications. I think um, – St. George's House was a bit bigger. But I've popped back forward for the last few weeks uh, to the London Metropolitan Archives where they have a lot of information about the uh, London slum clearance projects of the 60s, um, particularly Tower Hamlets, which was going through a lot of stuff then. And I found uh, in their documents plans of St. George's House, the one next door to George Yard buildings and it had a very unusual layout in that um, it had a central staircase going up and if you've seen the photographs of the backs of George Yard buildings and St George's house um, that I've posted up and things like that um, it's a very narrow staircase by the looks of it uh, going sort of backwards and forwards on three or four levels with balconies at the back Um, but the George's house plans that i saw make it out as if you have to go through various other rooms to get into other rooms as if it was a real sort of communal sort of thing anyway um after finding this i discovered that they did indeed have information on the demolition of georgia buildings and they had absolutely everything in there maps you know um correspondence all that sort of stuff but did they have a plan of the actual building Nope. <laughs> it's the only <laughs> thing they didn't have. Um, so a long, convoluted, drawn-out story is it's quite possible, by looking at the, the pictures of the two buildings, or certainly the backs of them where all the action seems to be, um, that they were built in similar circumstances. And, and you can actually see the stairwells of George R. buildings um, on my the photograph that i I found right and it 's right. not it 's not very wide. I have to say i 've been able to find an actual plan of the interior like I did for the house next door um it 's impossible to say isn 't it it 's um mm. if someone wants to do if two guys want to stab a woman i 'm sure they will quite happily squeeze themselves in to any sort of particular space, uh, and we don 't know exactly how wide the landings were as well. I can see how wide the staircases were, Right. And they weren't that right. wide. But the actual landings, um, we don't know. Once again, it's a time machine job. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. you
0: know. And if you, I mean, if it was like, let's say, the size of an elevator, then you could theoretically fit nine or ten people in, in uh, the space. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah uh, I, I, I couldn't see, you know, looking at the, 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 the pictures of the staircases, I think Jane Coram did some drawings of it based on the photograph for a Ripperologist article. And, um, yeah, I mean, if, if someone's lying there, I, I can't see no reason why you couldn't have two people there. It doesn't mean I support that theory, but it's um, right. in answer to the question, probably you could. If they wanted to squeeze in, they probably could.
0: Right. Okay, so on to, uh, we have another listener question concerning the site of the Alice Mackenzie murder at Castle Alley. Mm. And this asks uh, that the southern end of Castle Alley seems to have been covered with an archway entrance similar to George Yard. When was this widened out to its current width?
2: Well, the, uh,
0: the arch... Do mm.
2: y- you know got- the answer, John? Yes. No, but you've, probably got, you've probably got exact dates. I've only got rough. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's a... It's a, said it better than I. it's a roughly exact date. Um, it was mentioned in that um, Pall Mail budget article murder land revisited in 18 october 1890 uh mm. where the journalists had gone round various murder sites he didn't bother with dorset street for some reason um talking about what they were like and he said uh, at least there's some sort of i'm paraphrasing here but he said at least there's some sort of hope for the castle the, the horrible castle alley where the latest murder took place uh seems to be sort of undergoing some form of uh redevelopment uh, where they were going to be demolishing the buildings at the bottom and actually um if you see there's I've seen the 1890 goad map of that and it's it's been you know it's being demolished you got the idea that it's it's been opened out at the bottom so um with the map and that press report which was basically seemed to be rather encouraged by the fact that this sort of terribly nasty little sort of alleyway was being opened out as a public thoroughfare, uh, is 1890, basically. <laughs>
2: The, the arch itself is certainly no longer there by the 1894 Ordnance Survey. And by the time we get to the 1913 Ordnance Survey, uh, the, uh, the western side of the street has been completely levelled uh, as well. There had mm. been prior to that a small, narrow building uh, on the left-hand side of the road that would mean you'd have to dogleg yourself into it. But, uh, mm. And that was there by the time the archway was removed. But by the time of the 1913 map, that small building has gone as well, and the, and the street goes mm. straight
0: up. Okay. Um, Anything else you'd like to add on Castle Alley? Or we can just move right on to Swallow Gardens. Um,
1: Castle Alley. Um, Well, it was still called Castle Alley, I think, after they got rid of the archway and all that. But eventually it just became one great big old castle street sort of thing. But there were a lot of little courts and alleyways off the right-hand side of it. I'm sorry, on the east side of it. I should say it was like Chess Court and Old Castle Court and all this Newcastle Street Old um, Tyne Street and things like that um, so a lot of which <coughs> excuse me was damaged during the Second World War yeah. and uh, now it's all part of this big humongous horrible 1960s housing estate, mm. which looks like something out of a clockwork orange or something yeah <laughs> and still is um, <laughs> so yeah it's uh, it's it's changed quite a bit um so, yeah, I think that's probably, that's probably the quickest turnover of changing a murder site out of all of them, I think.
0: One uh, site that I don't think has changed too much is the Royal Mint Street corner of Swallow Gardens, where Francis Coles was murdered. Um, can uh, one of you or both describe uh, to us Swallow Gardens?
2: Yep, Swallow's Gardens itself, oh isn't it just (laughs) Uh, (laughs) even in daytime there's something about that place, it's not just the atmosphere it is always dark there it could be a really bright sunny day and you can walk under those arches and it's suddenly dark Mm -hmm. and it's always damp and uh, it's echoey, it's a very strange Mm -hmm. place to be. Swallow's Gardens itself was originally uh, an early 19th century rather exclusive development of houses with nice gardens with trees and all that kind of thing, but when the, uh, the railway line to Fenchurch Street was Built in 1854, they all went, and um, it used to be uh, even wider than it is now because there was a goods yard just round the corner, and there was uh, a sidings went from that. There were tracks went from there as well, which have now gone. So that was fairly extensive. Um, and by that time, Swallows Gardens itself, those houses came down. The the railway line and, and the uh, the railway arches and the the bridge were were built over it, and Swallows Gardens uh, was then retained in, in name alone. Uh, simply as a a railway arch linking um, uh, Chamber Street to to Royal Mint Street there was no by the time of the Ripper murders and by the time the railway came Swallows Gardens was not a habitable place it was just a passageway with with no buildings in it at all
0: and uh, that's the way it
2: remains to this day yeah, today it's a private lock up. It's owned by Barney's Fish and Chips and it's always locked up and you can never get in there. Yeah. Um so so there's Yeah. there's there's roll down shutters over the top of it today. Mm. Um I've I've never seen it open. There's there's a little uh, he's got a post box there so you can look through it. To the inside, uh, on the other side of the street from from the, the, the side on Royal Mint Street, um, you can see the uh, the arch itself. Uh, a, a particular a point to focus on is that where the Docklands Light Railway emerges up to uh, ground level for the first time, from having been running uh, underground from from Bank or from uh, from Tower Hill Gateway, the actual point where it hits the surface is is level right next to the archway where where Swallows Gardens is. Um, so, so you can – but you, I mean you can't see into it really either end. If, if you're looking from Royal Mint Street, you've got to look north and you've got the train line beyond you. And just after that is the arch itself which is bricked up and it has a a, a kind of high sealed up window uh, above that. And of course above the railway arches is, is, is another railway line, the one going to Fenchurch Street.
0: Okay. Mm. And another uh, railway line. That uh, we'll discuss here uh, this, uh, to wrap up the show is the site of the discovery of the Pynchon Street torso. Uh, this uh, location has is uh, changed uh, considerably um, since um, the the discovery of the Pinchon Street torso, in that the uh, mm. the location has actually been bricked up, I believe. But uh, mm. do one of you want to um, kind of describe where the Pynchon Street torso was discovered?
1: Well, the um, Street itself, um, before the coming of the railways, was actually a, in, in actually a straight line onto. I think it's Backchurch Lane, isn't it? It goes onto Backchurch Lane. Mm-hmm.
2: That's right. And then, with
1: yeah. the once the railway line and the arches were built, it curved, and uh, suddenly you've got this sort of row of arches, and uh, many times I've seen. You know the the place denoted as being the place where the torso was discovered as being several arches down, but mm. there are um, once well fortunately, there are extant drawings from the time of uh, where the where, where the body was actually found the, the torso was found and it 's the very first archway from backchurch lane and um, and it has been bricked up. <laughs>
2: It yeah, it's it's, uh, it, it's now in, it in some kind of uh, it's in some kind of office use now. Uh, mm-hmm. Down just beyond the railway line itself, down on Backchurch Lane, there's gates going into a, a yard, and uh, beyond that yard, um, there, there's I think it is an office. Uh, the, the arch itself is, is now used for that. So the yard leading into it from mm-hmm. the Backchurch Lane end. Um, so it's just it's just above uh, Cable Street. Um, if you look on Google Earth, uh, you you see there's uh, there's vans parked in there, and uh, the, the photograph I've seen on there was taken in the summer, and they've got uh, you know uh, um, parasols and uh, picnic tables and stuff out there <laughs> as well. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, certainly, by by the time of the uh, again looking at the ordnance survey map, uh, at the time of the murders uh, on the north side of Pinchin Street, where where John's mentioned that the road had curved around to accommodate the uh, the, the the train line to another goods depot, not not the same goods depot as is referred to for Swallow's Gardens. It's uh, another few minutes walk f- uh, further down the street from there, and that's actually a huge goods depot in question here. It, mm. uh, it, It had a a, a terminus uh, near commercial road itself. Uh, On the north side of the street, um, with Backchurch Lane, there was actually no buildings there at all. It's just an open piece of wasteland uh, directly facing the archway itself. At the time of the murders, the archway was was open at both ends. Uh, You you could have walked straight through it from end to end. Um, I think it was fenced at one side, but it was still, you know, there was nothing permanent there to stop people going through.
1: It was a bit like um, Soler Gardens, basically. Yeah. Mm.
2: yeah i guess so the difference of swallow gardens though all the pictures i've seen of that from the time uh only half the archway was was open yeah uh, if you recall there, there was uh there was fencing up and that that's why a lot of people a right. have been to abel's buildings today yeah further right, down yeah. chamber street and assumed that to be swallow's gardens because that is yeah. half the arch is open um yeah. but swallow's Gardens itself was, was half the diagrams there is of the discovery of the pinching street also the uh, the archway itself was was completely completely open and wasn't segmented
1: mm. Abel's Buildings is Swallow Gardens' little brother. If you could stretch stretch it all, it would look like Swallow Gardens as it would have been probably at the time. To mm. so make it a bit bigger. But very similar. Similar sort of thing.
0: All right. Um, is there anything further either of you wish to add about the urban landscape of the East End in 1888 before we call this a podcast?
2: Let's no, podcast. Oh, go on, go on, John. Sorry. Yeah. Apologies. Oh,
1: i go got on. this idea. Um, I was having a conversation with someone a little while ago as to what is it about the Jack the Ripper murder sites that incites such interest? And I don't just mean people, you know, like ourselves who go through the maps and try and find out exactly what it was like. Um you have the guided tours and things like that but also you have people that just want to go around it on their own and they take if you go on Flickr and things like that you see many, many, many photographs of the mm. murder sites taken by people who haven't been on tours they've not been you know all that sort of thing and um, I was just wondering I, th- I was saying to someone the other day the only other one I can think of where people it has that sort of fame I suppose is uh, 10 Rillington Place and mm. it's not there anymore. And in fact, to be quite honest with you, n- n- certainly none of the murder, s- Ripper murder sites are as they were. But is it because um, the murder sites are pretty much mostly in public places, so that you can actually go and stand where th- or see the spots? Where- what is it about this fascination with the murders? Is it because there was no crime scene investigation at the time, so um, you know people are going there to do their own sort of thing, you know, to to see what it was like or attempt to see what it was like. Why are the murder sites of Jack the Ripper so fascinating to so many people? Which is a bit of an odd thing.
2: I don't know. Yeah, I'm presuming that's a rhetoric closing Jerry Springer statement rather than a question, surely. <laughs> I don't oh, know yeah. the answer.
1: I think it is now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just know. <laughs> it is now. Yeah, I just, I just don't understand it because, um, yeah, people sort of say, oh, you know, why can't this place be like this or is it still like this? There's so much fascination for and, – and, and why can't, you know, the murder sites stay as they were? You know, and why should they and all that sort of stuff? It's just um, mm-hmm. probably because they were all in public places. Uh, you can edit this bit out at the end. It's not working, is it? <laughs> no, I thought it was really good.
0: Were you going to say something as well, Philip? No. <laughs> I just gave can that I- impression. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, I do believe we've covered many of the locations, nice. yeah. and uh, and I hope we gave the listeners a good education on what existed uh, at the sites of the uh, Whitechapel murders. So I do thank uh, Philip Hutchison and John Bennett for being on the show today. Thank you. And, You're very welcome, sir. Thank you. And um, I hope you enjoyed yourself. We'll call this a podcast. Thanks a lot, guys. Okay, okay. Thank you very much. And that was RipperCast, episode 45, Wandering in the East End, 1888, with Philip Hutchison and John Bennett. I want to thank Philip and John for being on the show today, and we are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, available at the website, www.casebook.org podcast, or in the iTunes Music Stores podcast section, under Society and Culture, History... Keywords Rippercast. If you have any comments or questions for myself or any of the guests that participate in the podcast, please feel free to email the show at rippercast at gmail.com. I want to thank everybody for listening. We'll see you next week.